Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Atheist Alliance International Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Sylvester. Just before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone to please like and subscribe. And this week, we're joined by Tim Sledge, an ex-Baptist minister and a writer and now an atheist, prolific uh, atheist uh, on Twitter, and he's here to tell us uh, about his life. So thank you for joining us, Tim. Thank you, Jason. I'm glad to be here today. Yeah. So as I mentioned, uh, you are a former Baptist minister, now an atheist and a writer. So maybe you can just kick us off by just introducing yourself to our, our viewers and tell us a little bit about uh, your life as a pastor and then how you came to be an atheist. Sure. Well, I was born in Austin, Texas, and um, we started moving around uh, right away. Um, and the reason for that was my, my father was an alcoholic. He was uh, a great dad in so many ways. Um, I, I, could, I wrote a tribute to him on Facebook yesterday for Father's Day. He's deceased now. Um, but he was a binge alcoholic, so uh, our family life would be great for a month, two, three months, and then suddenly everything fell apart. I knew if I walked home from school and my dad's car was crooked in the driveway, it wasn't going to be good. That uncertainty led to, uh, I'm just surmising this, but I think the reason we moved around a lot is that uh, he'd get in trouble something would happen. So uh, by the time I was eight years old, we were living in the West Texas town of Snyder, and we were going to the Avenue D Baptist Church. In my Sunday school class, they gave us a Bible, everybody a Bible, and that it was great, black gold letters on the front. And in the back of this Bible, there was um, a plan by which you could read the whole Bible in one year. And so I decided as an eight-year-old boy, that's my New Year's resolution. I'm going to read the Bible. And, and I started Old Testament in the morning, New Testament at night. I stuck with it. When summer came, um, our little Baptist church had vacation Bible school. And that's where, um, that's where Baptist, you know, they, they need to get their children right with God because, you know, we're, we're all really big sinners and we're going to hell. So, um, but, but that's not exactly how it was presented, but that was the bottom line. So uh, vacation Bible school, we had games and uh, crafts and fun Bible stories. But on Thursday, the pastor got us all into the auditorium or sanctuary and gave us an evangelistic message. He talked about um, how much God loved us and God sent his only son Jesus to die for our sins and that if we would give our lives to Jesus um, everything would be good you know that's what we needed to do and that's what my Sunday school teacher Mr. Reed had been telling us every week I knew I needed to do it I'd been struggling with it and I struggled that day but I walked the aisle and that day I gave my life my life to Jesus that was the beginning and I it, I was very sincere Everything I understood about it, everything I was told to do, I did it. And um, a few days later, I was baptized in the Baptist church. You're immersed all the way in the water, and it's a symbol of your new life in Christ. Later, we moved to Odessa, Texas, which is the home of the Friday Night Lights School, Permian High School. That's where I went to school. And uh, we had a we were in a larger church with a, a very dynamic pastor. And when I was 16, we were having a revival service. And one night I walked the aisle and my decision was, <clears throat> God is calling me to be a minister. Uh, I preached my first sermon about two weeks later. And uh, the next thing I knew I was preaching in different churches around West Texas almost every week. Uh, not just Baptist churches, Methodist, um, Assembly of God, different kinds. And then in my junior year, the school counselor called me to her office, and I don't remember what all we talked about, but then she said, Tim, I think you ought to run for student body president. 
And I said, mm, I don't think so. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody even knows me that much, you know? And she says, no, I think you should do it. So she talked me into it. And not long after that, I was giving a speech to the 2000 students at this large West Texas high school. And in it, I talked about my Christian commitment. And um, right after that, there was the vote and the announcement came over the PA system. I had won. Interestingly, that year, um, I was the president. The, the vice president was a friend named Jay, who was an atheist, a Jewish atheist. And then the secretary was a Catholic. So we had a Baptist, a Jewish atheist, and a Catholic. Um, again, I, I, I later in my senior year, I organized a, a, a Billy Graham-style youth rally at our local Colise Coliseum. And uh, 1,200 people showed up. We had about 50 young people who came and committed their lives to Jesus that night. So I was on a roll. You know, I was, um, God has called me and um, I'm, I'm going to serve God. I, uh, I started out my college in Abilene, Texas at Hardin-Simmons University, a Baptist school. But um, my dad, uh, near the end of the first semester, he said, I, I can't afford this. So I went back home with the junior college, got married. And uh, we ended up at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, through the help of some people in our church and a lot of grants and loans at the school. Uh, we packed up our, our trailer uh, with our furniture and pulled it on up to 1,200 miles to Wheaton, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. And that was a really exciting time. At Hardin-Simmons, my Old Testament textbook was written by Samuel J. Schultz. At Wheaton, I was sitting in a class with about five other students, and the teacher was Samuel J. Schultz. While I was there, I sat 10 feet away from Billy Graham as he delivered the chapel message one day, and I just couldn't believe I was sitting there. Um, and I met some people, uh, some close friends of mine, uh, Philip Yancey, um, who Billy Graham later said was his favorite Christian author, uh, Philip and his wife and my wife and I shared a rental house. And uh, another good friend was Steve Bell, who ended up on the staff of uh, uh, one of the top three churches in the, in the country, uh, just out, outside of uh, Chicago. His pastor was Bill Hybels. And um, so it was a, an exciting time, a tremendous time. Um, I decided to go back to Texas for my theological education. So I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which at the time was the largest um, Protestant seminary in the United States, maybe the world, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I got my master's degree and then my doctor of ministry. And while I was a student there, I was called to be youth minister at a church in Memphis, Tennessee. We would live there in the summers and then um, alternately uh, fly or drive from Fort Worth to Memphis during the school year. Uh, one of the things that happened there um, is, is key to what ultimately happened to me. And it was one of many, what I call exceptions to the rule of faith. These had started almost immediately. Like uh, when I was back in West Texas, I preached a summer youth revival. And during the revival, we had an invitation at the end of the service. And uh, a guy came forward, a young man. And everybody said, oh, my goodness, we can't believe he came forward. This is this is incredible. This is amazing. And uh, so I was excited about that. And the same church had me back a year later for another revival. And I don't remember the guy's name. Let's say his name was Bill. And I, one of the first things I said when I got there was, well, where's Bill? How's Bill doing? And they said, uh, who? Bill, you know, Bill. Oh, who? Bill, the guy who had that dramatic conversion. They said, oh, uh, he came for a couple of weeks and we never saw him again. Well, that was really discouraging to me because I believe the scripture when it said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I believe the writing of the apostle Paul who said, it is not I who live now, but Christ who lives in me. It was conversion. It was what Billy Graham, the great evangelist of the day, talked about. And it's what evangelicals believed in. But 
that was one of my first experiences of seeing that, well, this conversion thing, it's a little more complicated than uh, I first thought. And uh, my response, though, was, well, you know, Tim, you need to learn more, get more experience. You'll be able to figure this out later. And I just sort of put it in my back pocket. An exception to the rule of faith. Well, okay, back to Memphis, Tennessee. This was about two years after Martin Luther King had been assassinated at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis. The students in my youth group, uh, some of them remembered watching army tanks roll down their streets to deal with the riots that followed his death. I got to where I played a game when I got off the plane in Memphis. I um, played a game with myself, not a really funny or fun game, but I would, I would note how long it took to observe some overt example of racial tension in that city where it was about half black and about half white. Um, so while I was there, um, I started a ministry called Dialatine. My master's and doctoral work at the seminary, I majored in pastoral care because, well, I think I think one thing that was going on is I was already looking for ways to make this thing work better. And so I was real interested in counseling and helping people. This dialatine ministry, well, I, I trained some teenagers to talk to kids about, you know, if they were uh, struggling with their self-confidence or feeling suicidal or whatever was going on, our, our young people talk to them and they did so with love and it, and it wasn't just like trying to you know get them to pray to receive Christ although that was one of our goals so it, it was real successful uh, TV stations radio stations in the city gave us free advertising lots of lots of teenagers called in on the weekends and well the telephone was no uh, discerner of skin color so everybody called in including African-American youths and uh, our, our young people talked to them and helped them. And we always invited the kids who called to our youth events. And pretty soon, uh, two African-American girls who we had reached out to on Dialatine showed up at a swimming party in a suburban home of one of our church members. During that swimming party, which seemed to be going great, uh, I got a phone call from the dad of two of the girls in our youth group. And uh, I won't use the word he used, but he said, I understand you've got some, you know, bad word there at the party. <laughs> and I said, no, we don't have any of those, but uh, there's a couple of African-American girls here. Yeah. And uh, he was furious. He was furious at my response. He came and got his daughters. And along around that same time, our pastor was very uh, he was more liberal within Southern Baptist life, if, if you can grasp that. Uh, but um, he was very pro-race relations, and he, had, he was outspoken in Memphis about that. But someone had discovered that our weekday preschool did not accept African-American children. Um, a prominent family, black family, had tried to get their daughter admitted, and they were rejected and were told this is our policy. A newspaper reporter uh, found out about it on a Saturday morning, a big story. Um, I it may have been on the front page, if not the front page on one of the section front pages. And uh, it, it, it targeted our church for hypocrisy. And it said that the NAACP was going to picket our church the next day. An emergency deacons meeting was called. The pastor was out of town at a conference in New Mexico decided not to come back. <laughs> that kind of surprised me. Um, and so as I was going to the deacons meeting that day, um, I grabbed a, a handful of tracks that I that we used in our dialatine ministry about race relations. It was positive. You know, everybody's a child of God. Everybody's the same. And I, I thought those might come in handy uh, during the discussion. But when I got to the deacons meeting, it, it wasn't anything like what I expected. Um, some of the older deacons seemed especially upset, and I heard one of them utter under his breath something about he'd like to kill somebody. He was worried they were going to come inside the church. Uh, the younger deacons were better. I think their approach was more like, okay, they, they just wanted to get the older guys calmed down and just sort of deal with the crisis and move on. But what I learned that day was uh, nobody wanted to look at 
the pamphlets I had that quoted Bible verses about equality. This was a cultural thing. And so once again, I was faced, but, but this time with a huge exception to the rule of faith. These men, these were deacons elected as lay members who are to be spiritual leaders. They all had not only professed that Jesus had come into their lives and changed them, um, they were supposed to be a cut above the average. But a few of them were, but many of them were not. Um, so that was one more exception to the rule of faith. My next church was my first full-time church in a suburb of New York City. Um, I was, I was so excited. My wife and I were so excited about living there and being there's just so much happening there. And uh, so we were at the seminary moving. The, we got a professional moving uh, truck, loaded up our belongings and 2,500 miles to a suburb, suburb of New York City in uh, northern New Jersey. When we got there, the mover said that they needed a check for $2,500, which we didn't have. Uh, but no worries, the uh, church is going to pay for this. So I called the chairman of our pastor search committee and he called the treasurer, but the treasurer said, uh, no, uh, we didn't vote for that. We didn't vote to pay the moving expenses. Uh, fortunately, a kind deacon wrote a personal check and paid the movers, but what I found out later is that the treasurer was uh, mentally disturbed. He needed psychological help, and somebody had said earlier, you know, I think it'd make him feel better if, um, if we made him treasurer, because he, he was an accountant. I spent the next two years as pastor of that small church dealing with a mentally ill man in my congregation that when we finally addressed it and asked him to leave, one lady told me, I'm afraid he's going to come up here and kill some of us. Hmm. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Doesn't sound like that. And then there was a, a guy who showed up one day. Um, he and his wife showed up. They were, they were having a hard time. And, um, He'd actually appeared on the, uh, there was this giant ad campaign back in those days in the 70s for a particular brand of cigarette. And their slogan was, I'd rather fight than switch. And they had all these one page ads in the major magazines and newspapers with somebody with a black eye because they were fighting rather than switching their cigarette brand. And this guy had been on one of those ads all over the United States, but now his life was, was he was crushed. I talked to him tried to show love to him and I shared Jesus with him as that's what we did. And he prayed to invite Jesus into his life. About two months later, he, he robbed a bank and I, I went to visit him in Sing Sing prison. That's where the phrase up the river comes from. It's up the Hudson river from New York city. Well, that's another exception to the rule of faith. I served another church in Arizona, and then I ended up in the 80s uh, back in my home state in Houston, Texas, at a church that, well, it just seemed like the I'd finally found the, the perfect place for me. And I wanted so badly to lead a church to really grow. And that's what happened. In the 10 and a half years I was there, the church quadrupled in size. We reached about 2,000 in membership. And... Uh, Perhaps the most significant thing that happened there, both to me and to the church, was, um, and going back to my story of my dad and his alcoholism, my, my dad, by the way, got much better. He made a lot of progress, which was a, a good thing. Um, alcoholism ran all through my father's side of the family, including my cousin. I'd, we'd been close growing up. I'd, I'd go spend time with him in the summer. And, uh, and then as we went our separate ways as adults, we hadn't talked for, I don't know, maybe 15 years. But when I was in Arizona, I found that he was at a treatment center uh, in Wickenburg, the Meadows, about, uh, about an hour from where I lived. And so I went to see him and we reconnected. He got sober 
and became a leader in the 12-step program in, in AA in Austin, Texas, where he lived. And over the years, he would tell me, hey, Tim, the Meadows, you know, where you visited me, they've got a program for ministers where uh, they, they want ministers to come just to see what they do. And you can go there for free. I, I never wanted to go. I never had any reason to think I should go. But um, in 1988, I decided I was going to do a series of sermons on adult children of alcoholics. Suddenly, books were coming coming out all over the place about this topic. And uh, so I decided I would do a sermon series. And I thought, well, what better way to prepare for this sermon series than to go to the meadows like my cousin uh, suggested. So I did. I found myself on a Monday morning in a group of about eight people. Everybody else was either an alcoholic, a drug addict, a sex addict, or something that was alien to my personal lifestyle. After listening to the raw honesty and the, and the intense emotional pain in that group for one morning, my reaction was, I need to get out of here. I am not like any of these people. And I think I was disturbed by the, again, by the, the level of honesty in there. It was, it was disarming. But I'm not a quitter, and I didn't walk away. I stayed. And during the week, I came to understand, um, you know, emotionally, I am like these people. I do have some of the same emotional issues. And I see now that these issues are growing out of the fact that I grew up in a home with an alcoholic. I had a real intense experience that week. I learned about shame. I learned that sometimes the children of addicts and alcoholics uh, take on the shame of the of the parent. And uh, man, I I had so much more than just sermon material. My my life has changed. And I found myself wondering, why did I have to go to a secular treatment center to find out these powerful things that I learned there. I didn't think much about it. I, I preached my sermon series, and in the series, I was, I was more honest than I'd ever been. I'd been having panic attacks in the months leading up to this, and I talked about that. I was honest about it. I became very vulnerable. A few weeks into the series, the religion editor of the Houston Chronicle came and did a story on it. And after that, even more people came, people from all over the city, people from other kinds of churches. And at the beginning of that series, I had said, I want to do a support group. I need about six people who join me in getting together every week during this 12-week sermon series or 13-week sermon series. And um, we're going to talk about these things. I hoped, I, I wanted just, if I, I felt like if I had six people, that'd be enough. Well, Sign up night, we had uh, we had enough people for six groups, uh, around 60 people. Fortunately, I had other staff who could help me lead the groups. And uh, we did it again in the summer and, and in the fall. The people just kept coming and our church grew so that we had sort of a congregation within the congregation. We had people who whose stories and whose lives weren't squeaky clean. There was a lot of brokenness in their past. But I began to say, this is a healing church for hurting people. I wrote um, six different books to be used in these support groups. They were published by Southern Baptists, and I started traveling a lot, telling other churches. I spoke at nationwide conferences for Southern Baptists, talking about support groups and how powerful they could be. It was surprising how much support I got from my own denomination, actually. But then, in um, late uh, 1995, I'd been there a little over 10 years, the personnel committee of the church came to me and they said, Tim, we want you to resign. <laughs> and I was like, what? Um, there were no ethical charges. There, there, there were no, um, you know, there, there, it was not about, well, you did something wrong. It wasn't that. I said, well, what, what is the matter? And they said, well, just some people aren't happy with your leadership. Um, I've been, I was burned out. I've been traveling, writing, just going 90 miles an hour. 
and um, it's like they knew just when to strike. And after listening to them for a while, I was like, you know what? <laughs> if if you can do as well as I've done in a in a job, and be asked and be fired, basically, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I acquiesced. There was a business meeting on a Wednesday night. And uh, I got up and talked for a few minutes. And when I finished, about 80% of the people gave me a standing ovation for about two minutes. And that's when I understood that I had been tricked, railroaded. I, I really didn't think there, there were that many people against me, but by then I didn't want to stay. And so I left. Now I didn't leave my faith. Um, I started doing a five day a week Christian radio program, uh, a talk show in Houston. Um, I started working for our Baptist counseling center there in Houston. I did both of those things for about a year. And then for different reasons, I, uh, unable to make enough money and wanted in the radio and the counseling. I just, uh, that wasn't what I was cut out for. Although I have a lot of respect for people who do that. It wasn't my thing. I tried other things. Uh, I got involved in a company called Flashnet that was uh, one of the first companies selling dial-up internet access at a reduced price. And after about three years, I ended up as their number one distributor in the nation with other uh, people under me selling internet. Uh, the one thing we didn't see coming was high-speed internet, and that's where the phone companies came in, and so that ended that that endeavor. What I ended up doing was writing um, software for businesses, and that's something that I, I still do. Um, I kept going to church. My wife was a children's minister, and she actually ended up on the staff of another church. And so I would go and listen. I still had uh, invitations to speak at different places. And this went on um, for about, uh, about um, five years. And then some things happened in my life. Um, I left my marriage and, and I had never done anything like that. It's the first time I'd ever engaged in a major rule break. Uh, for my value system as a Christian. I won't go into all the reasons or all the things that happened. I, I explain this more detail in my book, Goodbye Jesus, but I ended up very broken, not arrogant, broken. And um, I was, I had moved to Fort Worth where I'd gone to seminary and I, I started looking for a, a church not a church where I could be any kind of leader, but a church in a Christian community. They talk about restoration when you, as a minister, you've fallen. I knew I couldn't be a minister again in my own uh, set of values that I'd followed all my life. Uh, I was no longer qualified, but I just wanted a, a church home. I wanted to get back uh, to feeling that I was in fellowship with God and I had a community. And I, and I would try one place after another. And again, I go into more detail in my book, but everywhere I went, there was some obstacle. I, I think I was, I think I scared some of the pastors. Some of these churches were smaller and they just didn't, it was too much for them to handle all that had happened to me. And um, this went on for quite a while, um, I would say a year, maybe two. But every time I would go, you know, with my hopes, okay, I'm going to find my place again. And it just, sometimes it would take a day, sometimes it would take weeks. And I finally just said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to church anymore. It's too painful. And it was just kind of a survival thing at that point. Um, so, when I stopped going to church, an interesting thing happened. It was like I, I had these uh, blinders on or special glasses, you know, that I looked through which I looked at everything. And um, those came off, whatever you want to call them. They came, it all came off. And I started thinking more freely. 
about the things that I believed. And one of the first things that it's sort of been in the forefront of my mind anyway, I had some friends who had children who'd grown up and come out as gay and I'd known these kids almost all of their lives. So one of the first uh, steps I took outside of my little uh, walled in place in my mind was I said, you know, I don't think people decide to be gay. I think I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's they're born that way. Maybe other things affect it, but it, it's not a it's not just a choice. It's and it's certainly not a sin. It was a big thing for me to say. And then not long after that, I said, you know what? I don't see how a loving God could send anybody to hell. That's just crazy. I don't believe in hell. And it wasn't long after that that. Um, well, I was just a given at this point. The Bible is not without error. The Bible has errors in it. You can't trust it. This was this was stretching out. This was like a snail's pace almost. And I think it was 2008. I, w- I wish I'd have written down the date. But um, remember Jay, the VP at Permian High School? We'd stayed friends all those years, and he lived in Fort Worth area also. And I said, Jay, let's have lunch. We we met uh, with some good old Texas barbecue. We start talking. I said, Jay, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't believe in God anymore. I mean, I literally almost had to pull him off the floor. I tried to witness to him for Jesus so many times. Never mean, you know, we always stayed friends, and he'd always resisted. That day, I apologized to Jay for um, the arrogance of my position, something I'd never seen before. I never saw myself as arrogant. I tried to be kind and humble, but now I, I, I saw the arrogance of asking somebody else, telling somebody else, you really need to think, think like I do on this, or if you don't, you, you'll be sorry. So for the next... Um, 10 years, I was, I, I was an atheist. I had become an atheist. Um, my family knew, my friends knew. And, um, but that was about it. Uh, if somebody asked me, I would tell them. And in 2018, I was doing some, I was looking at kind of my whole direction and, you know, what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I decided I wanted to write again. And um, I decided because I'd, I'd had experiences of um, meeting people and, you know, getting acquainted with people and, and that it just would just come up. I'd say, well, I used to be a minister, but I wouldn't just jump to saying I was an atheist, but I'd say, I don't go to church anymore. And I don't believe any of that anymore. And they would uh, frequently say that so interesting. How did that happen? So that made me think that, well, maybe people would be interested in my story. So I wrote Goodbye Jesus, and on Easter of 2018, at the Houston Secular Community, Houston Oasis, I had my coming out speech as an atheist, and I I talked about my story. Since then, I've written other books, and I've been online on Twitter, and I've met so many people, um, so many like-minded people, people with stories like mine, and... um, (laughs) You know, there's so many things out there. I guess it's worse online about atheists. But I'll tell you, the atheists I know, by and large, are kind, thoughtful, uh, smart. Many, many of them very smart. And uh, so that's my community now. And that's my story. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Just a couple quick questions. I was making some notes while you were talking. So you mentioned you started preaching. You were still a teenager in high school when you were preaching. Yes. So is is that something I, I think you and I mentioned we were chatting before uh, I interviewed David Olivero um, about a year or two ago. And I think he was mentioning the same thing, that he was a teenager is preaching. Is this something that's common in Southern Baptist churches or in, in, the, in the Bible Belt itself to have? To have teen preachers? Well, it depends. It's not real common, but it depends on your denomination. And I think uh, David, I know, was uh, Pentecostal. Um, David's a good, good friend of mine. He's a good guy. 
Um, so I can, I'll just speak for the Baptist church. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but every Baptist church is independent. They own their own building. They, their connection to the Southern Baptist convention is basically they use the Southern Baptist convention literature for their Bible classes and they get, they, they sort of tithe some of their money, send it to the Southern Baptist commission to support what it does. And the big emphasis is on foreign mission work. So, each local church decides um, there are two things you do. You can license a minister in Texas, and that allows you to do weddings. Um, and then you ordain the minister. And you can do that whenever you want. There are no requirements for education. So, I mean, one thing it does mean that there's a huge variety of um, um, kinds of people who are ministers. But uh, for most churches of any size in the Southern Baptist Convention, the, the minister has uh, most likely uh, been to college and uh, has a, a three-year master's degree uh, from the seminary, but he probably started preaching many years before that. It seems a little odd that you, know, you would think, I would think in most other denominations, and I, I'm not an expert, but I would, I would assume that, you know, the minister is someone who's who's been to divinity school and has graduated and has, did not start preaching as a, as a teenager. You know, they maybe participated like, you know, I, I was, I, I grew up in a Protestant church in Canada, you know, and I, I would do Bible readings, but, you know, I certainly never gave a sermon or preached. So. You know, and it, it was possible. I, I don't know. I wouldn't say it was that common. I mean, Odessa probably, my hometown had probably 70,000 people at the time. And I think I was the only uh, person doing what I was doing, or maybe I was just more visible. I don't know. So, uh, but but it was possible. It was possible. And oh my gosh, the adults loved it. Um, I had one friend who, whenever he wanted to go anywhere, we were in high school. His mother would always, you know, give him the, all these questions. Well, who's where are you going? Blah blah blah. But he learned that if he if he said he was going with me, like no questions. Okay, that's good because I was I was what this is what the parents wanted their kids to be, and it was a. Uh, I mean, I wasn't doing it for ego, but man, it was it was a trip. It was um, I was I was admired. I mean, the, the West Texas culture at, at that time probably still is. Uh, Baptist was the largest group, and that was the you know there was a um, the cultural power of religion is is can be very strong, and and it was there. Yeah, definitely right now. The buckle of the Bible Belt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, and you, you you mentioned a couple of names when you were at Wheaton, but uh, I know that uh, Professor Bart Ehrman also went to Wheaton. You, you didn't mention him, though, but any chance that you guys were there at the same time, or you maybe no, he, met him? He was uh, there a few years after I was, but one of my bucket list things is to meet Bart Ehrman. Uh, I studied under the same Greek professor he did, not as illustriously by any means, but um yeah and and i would say one thing i didn't mention in my story i left what was the primary thing and a lot of people say well you just got your feelings hurt um i'll tell you when you're a pastor you get your feelings hurt all the time you got to be tough uh but but what happened at my last church was very painful but i didn't stop being a christian because of that it was um it was um you know, 10 years later, more than 10 years later, when I left my faith and I, and I, I hung in there for a long time, but what, but all those things that happened, um, did make me start thinking more openly about what it was I really believed. And, um, so it was like, okay, this doesn't work as advertised. And I knew about discipleship. You're supposed to train people, make disciples and all that, but no, it was more than that. I felt that, when you step back and looked at it honestly, your average church, they're humans. There's, there's some people who are super good. There's some people who are rotten. A lot of people in the middle are good old regular human beings. But I, but I walked away saying there's no super, supernatural element here. Well, having left it all, and I really didn't do this in a methodical way until I wrote Goodbye Jesus in two, uh, leading up to 2018, and the question was, well, what do I think about Jesus? Who do I think he was? And that's where Bart Ehrman came in. His book, How Jesus Became God, and his 
whatever that I read or, or listened to that he wrote or said affected my uh, my uh, reconditioned view of Jesus more than any other source. And, and I still, um, I, I have a lot of admiration for him. Um, so I hope yeah. to meet him someday. Yeah, I'd like to meet him too. When I, I first started down my road of, you know, being involved in atheism and I was researching and his, some of his books, uh, Jesus Apocalyptic Prophet was probably one of the first ones I read. So, and this, I think this was before he really became super famous. So I had actually emailed him and he replied and, you know, we corresponded a little bit, but <coughs> excuse me, I've called, apologize to our viewers. Um, but I think now he's, he's so popular and he just gets buried and he doesn't really have time to, to communicate with people the way he used to. Yeah. So, but I've, I've got two or three of his books on my shelf and I, I refer to them quite often. So. Mm. But you're a lot closer to him than you, you're in Texas. He's in North, uh, North or South Carolina. North Carolina, Carolina, I think. Yeah. North Carolina, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And you mentioned, you said you weren't qualified. Now, did, did you mean that in, in a terms, like, cause obviously you said you had a master's in pastoral care, but I think what you meant was you weren't qualified because of the experience you went through. Am I correct in that interpretation? Uh, refresh my, okay, you're referring, what did I say? I'm, you I'm not you mentioned something about, you, you You were, I think it was when you were saying you were looking for a church to be a member, but not to preach, because oh, you said you yeah, qualified because, it. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, um, the New Testament, if, if you take it literally, says that um, a minister is, should not be divorced, and I was divorced, and so that's what I was saying is I, but, but I mean, there were, there were occasionally in Baptist life, you would run into some ministers who had been divorced and <clears throat> they were still in the ministry. But um, for me, it was just like, um, I, I just, I'm not going to try to do that anymore. I mean, I, I. So it's more a personal conviction that you weren't yeah. qualified because yeah. obviously you had the educational and the experience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. So have you got any new books coming in or something you're working on? Um, well, my newest book is Leaving Faith, um, Holding On, Letting Go, Looking Back and Moving Forward. And it's kind of a um, series of sort of like journal entries that's kind of a shorthand form of describing my journey. Um, after Goodbye Jesus, I wrote um, four disturbing questions with one simple answer, and it's four uh, really simple arguments against belief in God and belief in Christianity. Uh, right now, and one of the most recent things I've done um, through all this uh, writing and interacting, um, one of the people I met is David Madison, who is um, a writer who lives in New York City. And I recently worked with him in editing and publishing his book, 10 Things Christians Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. And that is a great book. And it's, it's something I, I think I don't have any way of knowing for sure, but I think a lot of Christians are reading it because it's, it's pretty much straight Bible stuff. And one example, one of the 10 things would be uh, Jesus taught if somebody asks you to borrow some money, you should always say yes. Um, I don't think I know any Christians who do that. So the book is about things that Jesus clearly said, but hardly any Christians do. And um David and I are working on another book right now. It's a rewrite of a book he wrote in 2016. And um, the, the first one that should be coming out in about the next month deals with um, um, reasons why we, we, we can't really trust the, the Bible as, as divine revelation, why we can't trust the Gospels. And I'd have to say, Jason, that part of my experience, because I, I still... Um, part of it's because the writing I do, it leads to further study. And I, I watch a lot of things on YouTube. And it's like every uh, with every passing week, I look back at what I used to believe. And I think, um, man, how did I, how did I believe? How did I let myself do that? Because yeah, I, think, I think that's a pretty common feeling for a lot of uh, ex-believers. Yeah. Uh, because it's it just so clear that, for example, the New Testament, the Gospels are so, there are so many problems. And, you you know, you can take you could take a dozen guys who spent their whole lives 
uh, guys like Bart Ehrman, but not as successful and well-known as him, put them all in a room, and what are they going to do? They're going to argue because it's not clear. We can't know. And the thing that I keep coming back to is, is this really the best, for the sake of argument, a God who made this universe and who therefore could be considered the inventor of communication itself? Is the Bible the best he could do? It just doesn't add up. I don't think yeah. so. Yeah, there's lots of problems, lots of lots of contradictions, even though the evangelicals claim that there aren't. I came across one uh, just, I'll be posting it one of my memes tomorrow. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 14 about speaking in tongues. And yet, what do Pentecostals do? They speak in tongues. Like, well, obviously, these Pentecostals haven't read the Bible. So, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the uh, one of my good friends from high school ended up on the staff of Oral Roberts University, and it caused us to kind of grow apart over the years because our views were so different on that that same book that we both said we loved and we believed in. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely. I think for people who've examined it critically, come to the same conclusion we do. But unfortunately, people who won't pull at that thread i think i i've speculated in the past they know there's something wrong but they won't pull at that thread because it will unravel their whole life everything that they've they think about themselves their core belief would just unravel and they're just unwilling to go there yeah yeah i think they're one of the things i try to keep in mind uh, as i post on twitter and write is that there's so many varieties of Christianity and within each variety, there's so, I mean, every person is different. So um, some people, I think they, they don't, they just don't really think deeply about much of anything. And they're, they're actually <coughs> happy about, you know, what they believe. And because their exposure is so limited, it's they're in a bubble and they don't, they don't even know there are problems, but, and then you're also sort of commissioned. Um, um, well, that's not a good word. You're you're uh, preconditioned, and and it's reinforced over and over. Don't. It's, it's like a magic deck. Look over here. Don't look over there. And you do it so long, it's like it's just natural. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why there's people like us out there. So, and I I think like my friends who who've teased me that you know I. I can be more dogmatic than than the faith believers. And I'm like, no, I think it's, I want people to understand if they're gonna believe something, they should understand it and not just regurgitate something. They should All think right. about it critically, especially if they're gonna devote their life to it and then, and subsume their critical thinking. And I actually got one of my friends who who's always teasing me about, you know, being very dogmatic. I, I got an email a couple of weeks ago from someone who thanked me for, you know, he was struggling with his faith and, you know, that it helped him to know that there's other people out there who had struggled with their faith and that had, have looked critically at these these beliefs um, and it was helpful to him. And so I forwarded that email to, to my friend who's always teasing me. So like, you, you know, you call me, you know, you tease me that I'm dogmatic and I'm more dogmatic than like an evangelical creature, but this is why I do it because I can reach people and I can help people. Yeah. I would, I, that's, that is a good, a good point. And I, I think that, well, I would say that one of the reasons I write and one of the reasons I'm online <clears throat> expressing these views is, is just what you said to help people who are struggling and to help them know that they're not alone and maybe give them some things to think about. And also to help the people that have already made the decision, but have been shunned and feel alone. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So I think, that's that's pretty important yeah and I, i've made the point several times like i know full well i'm not going to convert any hardcore believer right. but there's a lot of people out there that are sitting on the fence and they're kind of waffling and i'm just going to give them that little nudge so yeah in the united states the, the statistics are showing that um there is a trend away from belief um they're not necessarily all becoming atheists but they are moving away from uh from religion and uh so it, it's that that's something that it's just what regardless of what we do i think it's happening 
Um, but um, yeah, I, ju I just think they're this, this, and I see it almost every week on Twitter with the, the people I interact with. There is a sense of, of gratitude for being able to have other people who are like-minded. And um, some people say, well, you know, you left faith. Why are you still talking about it? <laughs> well, I'm kind of like the guy who drove down the road and saw the bridge was out and I'm back and I'm trying to flag cars down and say, hey, don't go down there. It's dangerous. Um, yeah. But I agree with you, Jason. Um, I, I don't ever expect somebody who's happy in their faith or they're, they're committed. I, I'm not going to change their minds. Some, it's almost like something has to happen to in your life that jars you. That's what happened to me. And um, especially if you've been doing it a long time. Was that good line? You can't reason somebody out of something they didn't reason themselves into. So I think that's kind of what you, you expressed. They need to have some experiential uh, thing happen to them that alters their thinking or, or sparks something that starts them down that road of thinking. That they're not going to get there, you know, by listening to our arguments. So the, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was, uh, I think, uh, street epistemology is what he did or does. And I think this line was from him. Uh, he would ask a, a person a question. What could you tell me? What could be, what could you learn or what could happen to you that would make you stop believing? And if the answer is absolutely nothing, then it's kind of like, well, okay, nice to see you. Have a nice day. I mean, there's not really much of anything to talk about when you're in that mode. And uh, I know because I've been there. I've, I lived that for a long time. Yeah, I, I was having an exchange um, last week, I think. Um, I've been doing some videos on the book I'm working on, and I presented uh, two books from Bart Ehrman was on. I had six or seven books that I cited from, that I was citing quotes and scholarship from. And this person was questioning me. He says, well, you're just, you're just quoting some random people on the internet. I'm like, these are professors from Oxford and Cambridge and Bart Ehrman, these are not random people off the internet. And he's like, well, I, I prefer to believe, you know, what you know, the, the apologists say. And I'm like, well, then there's no point talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if you're, if you're going to say that two scholars from Oxford, Bart Ehrman, another guy, I can't remember all of them. Richard Carrier is another yeah. one. It's like, if, if I'm quoting scholars and you're just denigrating them as people, random people off the internet, then this, this is a pointless conversation. Okay. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, Tim. So uh, we'll put some links in the, in the description. So if anybody's looking for Tim's, uh, his pages or his books, uh, you can look in the description and they'll be there. <coughs> Excuse me once again. So we'd like to remind everybody to like and subscribe. And uh, Tim, any, any parting thoughts before we go? Well, just uh, thank you for having me. It's been good to be able to share and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thank you for coming on and telling us about your journey. So, okay. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up and we'll see everybody on the next show. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, thanks for listening and don't forget we're on YouTube, so follow us on YouTube, just search for Atheist Alliance International and please subscribe and hit that notification bell. We're also on all of your favourite podcast platforms, so make sure that you follow us on there as well. See you next time.